Welcome to the Priority Zero podcast, stories of service. Welcome to the Priority Zero podcast. My name is Aresti and I'm very excited to have you guys with us today because today we have Jeff Bateau with us. Jeff is an intensive care paramedic with St. John Ambulance and also a flight paramedic and was an ex-combat medic with the army in South Africa. Jeff, welcome to the podcast, mate. Morning, Maris. How's it going? I'm doing great, mate. I'm really excited to have you on. We had a little bit of a chat before you came on, just about your experience in your past. And to be honest, I'm blown away, you know, by everything you've done and the experience that you had. I'm, I'm really excited to get this one out to share with our audience. Can you start off by telling us a little bit about your upbringing and where you're from? Yeah, sure. I was born in England. We migrated to South Africa in about '75. Um, did my schooling there was interested in first aid and joined St. John's as a volunteer in South Africa. When I got my conscription, so two years military conscription, fortunately, uh, I was actually put into the, the army medics. I say fortunately, just a bit of a passion, but it was two years conscripted into the medical services. And that was my first taste of pre-hospital healthcare. Yeah, that's awesome. Can we talk a little bit about um, you being a volunteer over there with St. John? Uh, very limited uh, involvement. It was just something that just the passion or interest, more of an interest in those early days. I was with the, the scouts and we did first aid and St. John's was, you know, in, in the same town and they had the, the requirement for bodies and everything else. So that was right in the very beginning, early days and not much involvement. Yeah, but what, what sort of things did you do with St. John? Were they, like I spoke to um, in one of our other episodes, uh, James Stewart, so he started off as a volunteer and a lot of the St. John volunteers over in New Zealand actually got to go on emergency ambulances where here in the NT they're more events based. Do you know what it was like over there? Um, so I was probably you know 12 years of age, juniors, it was it was just learning and, and getting certificates and enjoying and socializing. Yeah so more of the cadet program? More of the cadet program. Yeah perfect and that kind of inspired you to go yeah. down the route of medical yeah? That's it yeah. Perfect all right let's talk a little bit about your time in the South African military. You said you got conscripted so did you just get a letter in the mail one day and gone? Yeah, oh, crap. I, I, it was it was quite crazy. Um, sort of planning my life. Uh, I was actually doing medical technology and just got a letter to say I'm now a naturalized citizen. I now have to do two years of, of military service and three months basic training. And after that, um, ended up doing operational medical orderly instructor, uh, which is another uh, nine months of training. And and that was pretty intense. That was good. It was in the hospitals. It was a lot of a lot of uh, trauma, a lot of training, and and thoroughly enjoyed that course, which ultimately was to put me as an instructor for operational medical orderlies. And that didn't happen either because at the end of the training, we got put on a plane and sent up to the so-called border and put into the bush war. Before we get into the, your operational experience within that, how did you find the basic training? going into the South African military? Well, three months basic training, yeah, it was tough. It was, um, they had a large intake. Um, so all of the rooms and accommodation and everything else was all sort of insufficient. Um, and, and I slept in a tent for three months with uh, another nine guys and, you know, just basic training, physical instruction. That was it. It was just, you know, learning to be a soldier, rough, tough and ready. And it was in a place called Potchestrum which is uh, pretty similar to, you know, South WA. So, you know, very, very cold. We had ice on our, on our, on our tent in the morning. But it was, it was three months of basic training. Um, and it is what it is. 
Can we talk about you, once you finish your basic training, going into your unit, what you experienced going from basic to actually doing the job? Yeah, sure. So uh, the the training was at, at Barragwanath Hospital. Um, some of it was there in hospital service training. And we were in, into um, ED, um, learning how to suture, learning how to reduce fractures, put on plaster cast, assisting in theatre, doing airway, and just getting exposed in, in quite a bit of detail to a lot of the trauma. Not so much big cardiology sort of understanding or pathophysiology because, you know, soldiers are all young, fit and healthy, but it was more of a focus on trauma. And that was probably about four months on and off while doing driving, um, counter-operations, insurgency, uh, weapons and, and all of the other modules within operational medical audio instructor. Perfect. And... So you do that for four months, your training, once you got signed off, I'm guessing you got sent to a to a unit. Can you tell me about some of your experiences in that? I wish I got sent to a unit. We got um, marched off the parade ground, put onto an aeroplane and sent straight up to the bushwalk. Fortunately, I say fortunately, um, there were three of us that were put onto helicopters. So I my, my role was um, working with a, a doctor and paramedic or army medic. Um, and it was two medical crew in a, a super puma, um, and day one was twenty patients in the back of the helicopter, and you know people getting blown up and put into the deep end. So I I did that for three months, working out of Ondangwa uh, Air Force Base in in Southwest Africa. So not much face to face combat until it was time to go home, and there was only two seats and three people, and I got the short straw. So. Um, I was stuck in the, well, stuck, I, I remained up um, in the region for another four months, but for those four months I was um, on foot patrol um, in the bush and getting contact every other day as a medic. Yeah, what, what was going through your head through these situations? Hard, it is, it's, it's hard to describe, it's, you know, it's something I don't want anyone to experience. Um, I don't want my kids, I don't want my mates or anyone to experience that sort of you know, rubbish. It's, it's, it's a war. We didn't know what we were fighting for. We were just, you know, we were young and dumb and put on, you know, given a gun and put into the bush and, and you are fighting these people and, you know, you're fighting for your country. So you kind of, you know, you do what you, you think you're doing is right. You know, I, I didn't want to shoot anyone. Um, didn't want to. But, you know, you're put into a situation and, and as a medic, you kind of think, yeah, okay, I'm not going to shoot anyone. I'm going to help and, and fix people. And, yeah, we, we did that too. And it was it was just... You know, gunshots and, and bombs and ballistics. So good exposure from a, a life skill or a healthcare provider, but something that's not proud or, you know, I've got medals and everything else, but you know, it's, 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 um, defend or war is what it is. That's, you know, it's not a good thing. Um, is it necessary? Do you put young people, young kids into that environment? No, you shouldn't, but whether it's right or wrong. Yeah, experiences, I suppose it is what it is. Uh, different times back then. Totally. Definitely yeah. different times. Something I'm very happy that uh, we don't have that kind of thing happening in Australia where I guess we're very lucky because we're secluded from a lot of it and it still happens around the world, but we're just so far away from it. Uh, well, I mean, you know, there's the Bush War that was, you know, Angola and, and in, in hindsight, yeah, I found out that, you know, it was all funded by America and the CIA for the oil and it was to disrupt the Angolan government. So in hindsight, you know, I was pretty pissed off that that was the reason that we were fighting in a bush war, disrupting the Angolan government for oil. 
ultimately that's that's what it was yeah, resources um, you know living in south africa and on its own um has its own challenges um and that that's sort of what happened after the the, the defense force you know joined a a government service and worked my way up the ranks to intensive care paramedic level yeah beautiful it was a fun fact my uh my grandparents uh during the war in greece to escape the war they actually went and lived in the congo for two years yeah right yeah it's crazy so after this two-year term that you spent in the military in africa what was your next move after that where did you go so yeah i'd said i joined um benoni fire service so fire and ambulance service it was a government emergency services it was a town probably twice the size of of, of darwin um we had four stations um, both fire and medical and, and started right at the very bottom on day one um, but having the the training and the experience and the exposure of defense getting into the back of an ambulance probably wasn't a brand new experience but worked my way up the ranks on both fire and medical and got to a point in my career where i said okay i'm going to go 100 percent medical and forget the fire services was a single responder pretty similar to what I'm doing for, for St. John's up here, working as an intensive care paramedic as a single responder, backing up all of the other crews. Yeah, very cool. Uh, can we talk about some of your experiences or the differences working in South Africa to working in Australia, some of the case differences that you see? Completely, I'd say completely different. I mean, healthcare is healthcare, but a lot more trauma. There was a lot of disparity uh, between rich and poor and black and white, and there was an intense amount of crime um, and and we saw that on a, on a daily basis um, and then also for some weird reason there was you know higher speeds more crashes more people getting hurt lack of regulation for seat belts or speeding so but, but and people got hurt quite substantially also the population uh, Johannesburg um, right in the very middle of Johannesburg you're probably talking over a million people um, definitely a lot more now um or in benoni it was it was probably in excess of a million and the the exposure to to trauma gunshots stabbings domestic violence was a lot more than than the medical sort of component um, as opposed to you know cardiacs or i, I say that uh, something else that, that's highlighted difference in australia and, and south africa was childbirth or maternity obstetrics so we, we had really, really good training with the obstetrics. And before you actually hit the road, um, as a qualified paramedic, you have to deliver 10 babies in a obstetric unit. And then as an intensive care paramedic, you have to deliver 30 complications. So multiple births, cord prolapses, everything and anything. Um, but before you hit the road as a qualified, you, you need to have 30 complicated sign-ups and you do you deliver a lot more um, and i'm not sure you know probably less clinics more population and the the larger johannesburg ambulance service probably less vehicles um, so people are waiting for for ambulances a lot longer and ending up delivering babies in the back of an ambulance or at home yeah right. is it do we find that in those places people are getting a lot less care like prenatal care during their pregnancies, you know, not going for their checkups, their scans. Yeah, so the, the there are clinics, prenatal clinics, and and but people just don't attend them, and you know they'll sort of call an ambulance when when they have contractions. So yeah, a lot less prenatal planning, a lot less care, 
whether it's you know it's educational, rural, it's probably a bit of both. And um, unfortunately, that's the you know, that is the way it is. Hasn't changed. Hasn't changed. Yeah. All right. From there, uh, how long did you spend in the service there in South Africa? Yeah. So I was um, with the government service for oh geez, not sure exactly, probably five six years, and then I went to a private service. Second paramedic employed in a new national uh, medical service provider. Perfect. And what sort of things did you do in that service? What's what was the difference between going to government than going to a private service? Um, well, the massive, massive difference is is funding. So government has limited, very, very limited funding, versus the the private services that were that had the money, that had the the right equipment and the resources and logistics to provide really good first uh, first world healthcare. And I think that you know that's what I did. I joined a service and um, we initiated and started a national ambulance service, although we, we didn't actually own the ambulances, we subcontracted those out, but we had ICPs in all of the major towns with single response vehicles and backed up by helicopter. So we, we had five helicopters and uh, single response units. One or two of the services, we actually had ambulances. In fact, you know, we even broke, broke out into Botswana, Namibia, so Southern Africa. Um, it wasn't just South Africa. Um, after probably about six years, we, we spread further north because there was a, a demand for private health in, in the countries north of South Africa. And, you know, we had fixed in the airplanes and medical retrieval, um, although that wasn't under my portfolio. I looked after the helicopters and the, the ambulance services. How often were you getting called out in these helicopters? Is this was this an everyday occurrence or once in a while? Every day. We we probably had about fifty hours a month and it was from it was so the helicopters we had were single engine, they weren't twins, um, and so we only flew daytime. Um, and they were from six in the morning till six at night and yeah, pretty much every single day, um, twelve hours of, of um, picking up patients. Each helicopter was based at a um, a level one medical facility for the crews. So it was a doctor paramedic crew and all the right you know, equipment, ventilators. I say all the right equipment. Back in those days, we probably you know, the best ventilator was an Oxylog 2000. Um, and that's just pressure and, and volume, uh, rate and, and volume. So, you know, compared to the, the equipment that we've got today, much, much better today. Yeah, but, you, you know, single engine helicopters, yeah, working 50 hours a month. So quite busy. Yeah, you, you mentioned that the fund, there was a big funding difference between the private and the um, public systems. Yeah. What was the equipment like between the two? Like going from a, the, the government system, what was your your equipment like? Big, big comparative, big, big difference. The uh, Just a box of gloves in the back of the government hospital ambulance, you, you, you'll be lucky. That, that was probably definitely in there, one box of gloves, but um, soft colours, you might be lucky if you've got soft colours. We used to use BVMs and wash them. I mean, it was the Ambu reusable bag. We didn't have disposables right, you know, right way back then. Um, but lungoscopes, you'd, you'd wash the lungoscope blade. You'd, you'd reuse some of the equipment in the government environment. In the private, you know, you had the money, you had the funding, and we were buying disposable items because it was um, the best, best practice. Yeah, well... It must have been a big shock going from one to the other, seeing the resources you had in the government and then going to that private sector and going, wow, I've got everything that I need here. 
I think that you know that's it. Just makes a it is. There's a, there's a big difference between government service and private service. Um, there's two really big national ambulance services in South Africa, and then you've got the government service and um, complete black and white chalk and cheese. Now I know South Africa at the time was quite a violent place. I know you grew up in the time of Nelson Mandela, mm. and there was a lot of unrest during that time. Now I've heard a rumor. Now I don't know if it's true that some paramedics carry handguns. Yeah, some carry. Yeah, we did. Um, we we actually had uh, like a um, a utility vest, and in that utility vest, we would have a little pouch specially designed for whatever firearm you were carrying. And then you know that uh, some of the communities that we went to, they sort of said, you know, why are your guys carrying firearms? And we said, well, for protection, because we're getting shot at, or we there's there's high risk environment, and you know we don't want to enter into those. But when you get put into a a high risk environment where there is firearms and you'll get a gun pointed at you. Um, the last thing you want to do is pull it out and start a gunfight. Um, but the guys did carry firearms and the community sort of said, well, you guys stop carrying firearms because you're there to provide emergency health. They said, yeah, sure, we'll do that. Just stop shooting at us. <laughs> plain, plain and simple. <laughs> and, you know, those utility vests we used to have um, Kevlar or, or ceramic plates in. So it was also the bulletproof vest. And that's uh, that's unheard of here. It is, yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, completely different. You know, we get shot at, get guns pointed at your head. I was in the back of an ambulance, and um, guy jumped in the back and pulled out a gun and said, "If he dies, you die." And I said, "No, no, he's still alive. Look." Meantime, he's stone cold dead. Um, but I I had uh, the ECG leads running across my leg, and I'm flicking the ECG leads to create some complex on the on the monitor. And you know, flicking at a rate of <laughs> my fingers <laughs> as fast as he can, <laughs> hundred and twenty a minute. Um, but I said, look, no, he's alive. He's got a heartbeat. Um, and he put the gun down and, and stayed in the back of the ambulance until we got to the hospital. Yeah, it was frightening. Wow, that's uh, I don't even know what to say to that. Jesus. And did that sort of occurrence happen often? It's it's normal. It's it's a daily basis. It's you you'll get guns. You'll get um, not so much knives, but you know, it was a lot of guns. You'd get shot at, and it was it was violence against you know people wanting to shoot their own um, whatever whatever people in the, in the environment. I, mean, I don't know what to say. You know, black yeah, and black. Just, you know, yeah, that, that's probably the easiest just, thing. Black and black, white and white. It doesn't matter. But you know, they wanted to shoot each other, and um, and we were in. You know, we didn't want to get in the way, but when people get shot, they call for an ambulance, and, and yeah, we had to go pick them up. We didn't like, or we didn't go into, as I said, dangerous environments. We stood off, we held off on the side. You couldn't wait for police. There was insufficient police resources. So, you know, we, we'd sort of wait for another vehicle to come along. Um, we did change policies and, and look at, you know, safety and take everything into account. But yeah, these there, there are times that it was uncontrollable and, and too many guns. Yeah, because that, that, that was going to be my next question. Like, if there's any safety concerns up here, you know, we hold off the ambulance, we pull, pull them off to a safe distance away, um, stage them in an area and wait for police, and, you know, then we go in together. Yeah, but big difference. Yeah, but obviously you guys don't have that option, and, and, and it must be hard knowing someone's in there that needs your help and you can't go in. Up here in Darwin, yeah. I mean, it's at times I, I, I do question, you know, there's a stabbing or someone's being calling for, for medical assistance and, and we waiting for police for up to 40 minutes and 
and where are they and, and what's happening or do they have the resources available and and I question you know should we be going in maybe in numbers yeah, safety in numbers safety yep. in numbers or just call back and, and just get more information and is the perpetrator still there but I do believe it is it's a good policy it's, it's something that protects and saves and, and looks after our crew and that's the most important thing yeah 100% alright so what did you do after you spent how many years did you spend in this government service oh the, sorry the private service private service I probably left around about 1990 no 1998 so yeah probably just on seven eight years it was with the private service and then um, I actually started my own uh, event company medical events uh, ambulance service we had a couple of, of um, pre-hospital service provide contractors so we had an intensive care single response unit covering of helping out with security companies so providing medical cover to their clients and at the same time opened up a medical service um, sales for pre-hospital equipment so we built ambulances and we supplied pre-hospital medical equipment can you talk to me about one of your most memorable experiences on an event that you went to i know you mentioned something before about the world cup yeah um 1995 rugby world cup 30 days before kickoff i got called into the boardroom and it was like jeff we looking after the the players when they touch down on the ground it's our responsibility and it was like every single team every single player so it was doctors and nurses and paramedics on a national plan to to look after all the players from when they landed at the airport staying at the hotels and on the field um, so it was a logistical nightmare but it was it was challenging it was fun um, and South Africa won the World Cup happy days uh, let me pause and we didn't pause the we didn't we didn't poison the the Kiwis <laughs> you guys won that year I take it <laughs> Any other memorable moments that we can touch on throughout your career that you're, you're happy to share, whether it's you know good or bad? Or... I think you know there's there are there's lots there's lots of memorable moments. Um, point one out, you know, I think the bottom line is is you know a good outcome. It may be challenging for me as an individual, either physically, emotionally, mentally, even you know physically or not physically, but. Um, medically and having to think on my feet um, there's a a multitude of different sort of examples but I think you know there's always that good job that we talk about you know oh that was a great job Um, and you kind of like think to yourself well the person was half dead or they got their arm ripped off and um, how can you call that a good job you know we, we worked we worked well we worked as a team we did all the right things and the person lived and that is defined in the pre-hospital environment is that's a good job there's many different good stories i suppose but um that's the best if there's a you know, a good outcome obviously we're recording this uh you know in my house in darwin what brought you to darwin how did you get from south africa to darwin yeah well um i it, after i left medical rescue um i and started my own companies um i was actually flying for international sos on the fixed wing side i was uh, flying for the el24 and neck and i one the two private helicopters and i was also flying on um, what we called echo one the government helicopter service so enjoying life um, working my own business and then casual uh, freelancing for various other companies and services and one of those was offshore 
so for a period of time I, I went offshore for, for SRS onto an oil rig and um, my back-to-back -back was from Darwin um, and I sort of you know we, we had a good interaction good he was out there for probably about two years um, I probably only did one year with him at the same time back-to-back uh, -back. and um, I got you know an interest into into Australia probably after my divorce um, so then okay well I'll, I'll head off over to Australia I've had a bit of a calling a um, couple of times but nothing ever happened um, and then this guy actually phoned me up and said hey you know you've applied at QAS what's happening with that and I said yeah no it's all good I'm going ahead and I've been accepted and I'm just going to go over for my beaver and he said well do you want to come to Darwin and I said where's Darwin and basically I had an interview and got a job offer for St John Amblin's NT. Did you do any research on Darwin? Did you know what you were walking into? Uh, yeah, I did. A little, very little. I mean, did I do research? Not enough. <laughs> <laughs> what did you know about Darwin when you came? Um, no, I think, you know, the thing about Darwin was, you know, it was tropical. It was 12 degrees south of the equator. Um, so we knew the, the environment and the humidity and didn't know that we could not swim in the sea. I think if we knew that, probably wouldn't have come. But um, yeah. didn't realise the, the number of crocs. But otherwise, it's it's been great. Um, you know, it's it is a small town. I think, you know, St John Ambulance NT. There's challenges in the service. Um, it's it's diverse. It's remote. We you know we've got regions or, or branches um, all over the place, and like any service in the world, there's there's the logistics of, of um, remote locations. Um, what funding have you got, and what what services can you offer? So it's, it's challenging no matter where you go in the world and Darwin has exactly the same as everywhere else. Yeah, exactly. Just because of the, the, the vast distances between places, you know, we do a lot of work with, you know, remote clinics and mm. care flight and Royal Flying Doctors and SES and, you know, mm. at times call for the assistance of police and fireys as well. So there's definitely challenges here, but I think we work really well together with all those organisations. Yeah. Going from South Africa and coming to Darwin when you started with the ambulance service, Obviously, there's a lot of challenges over in South Africa that we just don't have here. How, clinically, how did you find it coming to the NT ambulance service? So, from from South Africa, not just the you know the I say all the um, home invasions and those sort of things and the violence and the intensity of the crime. We had 12 hours of, of intense trauma compared to, to Darwin coming here, and this is you know 14 years ago. It was um, not quite as busy as what we are now, but I've never seen that intense trauma that we had on a daily basis in South Africa. So Darwin, for me, is, is very relaxed, pretty much compared to where I came from. I can honestly say, you know, a 12-hour shift is, is, is a holiday. I know it's work, but the intensity of the crime, the, the volume, and you'd have 12 hours of intense trauma, um, whereas in Darwin, you'd have good clinical cases and a lot of medical comorbidities uh, and not so much trauma. Although Darwin is supposed to be the trauma capital of Australia, yeah. um, we Com do get good trauma. Compared to the rest of Australia, Compared yes. to the rest of Australia. You know, you get gunshots in Sydney, but, you know, we don't often get gunshots in, in Darwin. It's nice. It's it's comforting to actually work in, in an environment where my skill set is given to, to people that need it, who you know, have the medical complaints and conditions and a little bit of trauma trauma thrown in every now and then and you know that that happens accidents happen um compared to to south africa how can i compare that you know i, I sort of said you know 
South Africa is like 9 out of 10 or 10 out of 10 in intensity. Um, and in comparison, Darwin was probably 0.5. So massive, massive difference. Massive difference. Did you find yourself when you come over here feeling that you were de-skilling at all? Um, well, from the clinical scope, um, there was. There was probably 60% less scope. Um, so de-skilling, um, you know, we try and maintain those skills. Um, but from a scope of practice, definitely there was um, 60% less um, really? skills that you know we were doing in South Africa that we couldn't do in Australia. Can you give me a couple oh, of them, what they were? Well, I'm talking 14 years ago. So yeah. John Ambulance NT, you couldn't synchronize cardiovert. You couldn't RSI. You couldn't finger thoracostomy, surgical crack. Those are just some of the things that we couldn't do 14 years ago. Saying that, St. John NT is now on par, I think, with the rest of the world. You know, we have a really good high-fidelity medical team, the ICPs, and, and our scope of practice now in the territory is, is on par with the rest of the world. Fantastic. Now, I know we, this is going a little bit back, but when we had a little talk last time, you did mention that uh, you did a lot of stuff in fixed wings and helos, and you were involved in a few crashes. <laughs> um, Can we touch on that? <clears throat> yeah, okay. So fixed wing, uh, lost our, you know, lose landing gear on takeoff, hitting animals on, on, on the runways, um, eagles flying into engines, aquaplaning on runways, going off the runway and, and losing all your undercarriage, never ever hitting a brick wall, otherwise I wouldn't be here. <laughs> Helicopter, lost the tower rotor, probably on one occasion, I think it was dirty fuel and uh, wind so and you know we you know in a helicopter you you auto rotate um, if you have altitude and forward speed I'm, I'm not a pilot I've done more than enough hours in rotary and fixed wing um, and yeah unfortunately um, bounced a few times in the helicopters so auto rotated onto the ground probably about three times and bounced twice what some of the challenges that flight medics or paramedics face you know, being in the air rather than on the ground. I think the biggest thing is, you know, you're in a confined space at altitude. There's, if something happens, you can't stop or you can't pull over to put up another IV. So when you're in, in paramedical retrieval, you know, it's critical that you stabilize your patient prior to packaging. You know, don't put up one IV, put up two, not just for shits and giggles, but that's, that's good practice. And altitude, if it's, you know, not a free-flowing um, IV, they, they get pulled out, they they do get occluded if they're not being used. So it's not just the IVs, but it's a matter of stabilizing your patient and then package, because when you transport, you're in a confined space, but limited, you don't have that 360 access to your patient and you can't pull over. You need to be prepared for, for anything and everything. I suppose backup as well. It's not yeah, as easy to get you back up in the sky, is there? Well, you can always ask a pilot to come help, but then who's going to fly the plane? Exactly. <laughs> What's some of the training that you can expect to receive when you're working on these on these planes and aircrafts? So there's aviation uh, medical diplomas that are available. Charles Darwin have got one. There's also, you need certain tickets, a Bossiet, which is a basic offshore survival. Um, and that's basically if you, or Hewitt, helicopter emergency underwater training, at least that. So the Bossiet is for oil and gas. You know, you need a medical, fit and healthy, so aviation medical. 
you need a CASA familiarization on whatever aircraft you're flying on. Australia is catching up with the rest of the world as far as CASA medical regulation. There is um, the there are there are organisations in Australia who are promoting best practice, and that's not just from the medical perspective, but that's also from the aviation perspective. So you know, one pilot versus two pilots. Um, it's an extra set of eyes. Um, do you need IFR versus you know, or single engine versus twin engines? You know, best practice. You're going to be putting in someone's child in an incubator at 20,000 feet, flying them, you know, 800 miles. You don't want to do it in the back of um, a cowboy's little caravan that you know he, he uses on the weekend. So there's insurance aspects. There's there's medical legal aspects. There's there's a whole lot of things that need regulation from a aviation point of view and from a medical perspective. So so from a treating a patient in the back of an airplane or a helicopter, it is different because you you can't pull over and you need to stabilize, treat, package and then transport. And then from a CASA perspective, there needs to be, you know, regulation, um, the right equipment, the right brackets for, you know, the, the event that, that you do crash and all of the equipment's not sitting on the floor or on the patient's leg or loose in the back. It needs to be properly regulated and the right equipment for the right job. And it's not like that at the moment. Fair enough. And obviously you flew on these helos, especially because you did some time on the oil rigs as well. Talk to me about the oil rigs. What kind of situations did you see on these oil rigs as a medic? So working on oil rig as a, as a paramedic, um, it sounds glorious. You know, you jump on a helicopter and you fly to the oil rig and most swings are four weeks on, four weeks off. And the, you know, it's primary healthcare. There's not so much um, emergency medicine um, unless something goes wrong big. Um, and you then on your own with maybe one or ten patients who are critically ill and injured. Um, so it, it's a different perspective. There's, it's, it's a casual, easy, relaxed, that's what it sounded like casual, easy, relaxed job for four weeks out on the oil rig, looking after holes, sore throats and, you know... Cough, colds and sore holes, holes, as they say. But, you know, you... The the medic has other functions. It's not just, you know, seeing patients. And, you know, you're on call six till six at night and then technically, you know, you're in your your room sleeping when when you're off-duty or not in the clinic... Yet, you know, if someone is sick, they're going to come and wake you up and drag you out of bed and say, help, and you're going to perform your role. So essentially, you're working 24 hours a day for four weeks straight. Yeah, you're on call 24-7 straight. Um, and you've got other jobs. Um, depending on the rig, you, you, you've got to do the bed allocation. You've got, um, you help the health and safety guy with helicopter inductions, rig inductions, um, water checks, checking all the first aid kits, and you start talking about the Prelude, which is the largest boat ever manufactured on the water. Um, I think I recall something like 13 floors, and every floor has got a, every second floor has got an AED in, um, and a first aid kit in the stairwell. And that's not just, then you've got various officers and um, amongst the entire, you know, around the whole ship. Um, and that's the medic's responsibility is to check that, you know, it's a first aid kit. Um, and those things get used and they, they expire. And you, you know you you've got to do the right thing and check that first aid kit not just tick a box you know because there's, there's people relying on on those little first aid kits and 
you know, if they can put a band-aid on or not come to the clinic and wake you up at 2 o'clock in the morning and look after themselves, that, that's better for you, I suppose. It's, it, you know, saying that we, you know, things have changed as well. So reporting medical incidences, uh, before we used to, not we, the industry used to sort of bury or not report a medical case because it was bad on statistics. We've done a full 360 degrees. Every single person that has some inkling of a medical concern is reported um, because it's it's managed and it's monitored and it's you know we're looking after the workforce you know that's changed over the years for a good reason yeah did you get much cabin fever like people going to these things for the first time and being stuck on the the rig for four weeks and so i mean in perspective you know i've, I've probably done maybe four or five years of, of rig work and cabin fever um in in uh, the North Sea, you, you're talking rosters of um, four days on, three days off, because four weeks on, four weeks off for um, West Africa, Australia, although Australia's now moved predominantly two weeks on, two weeks off. Um, but you do get stuck on these things, especially in Darwin, off, off the coast of Darwin, um, because of cyclones and the helicopters can't take off. So you, um, yeah, you do get people who overstay. Unfortunately, they can't get off or their back-to-back is sick and they cannot leave the rig and you'll get people seven eight weeks and we do mental health checks on those so anyone over four weeks um, does get a regular mental health check for that you know that cabin fever but you also do get the odd odd individual who you know after 10 days will like start freaking out and getting a bit of cabin fever and offshore is not meant for them yeah that's it i suppose especially that that first uh, i guess stint that you go to will kind of weed those people out i guess Let's talk a little bit about your current role. Uh, you're a current intensive care paramedic for St. John Ambulance. Uh, I'm in a casual role at the moment. Um, I've been casual with St. John's for about two years, working for another service um, on the helicopter, so doing standby for, for SDS. But St. John Ambulance, you know, a really, really great bunch of guys. And as I said, you know, right up there with the rest of the world as far as, as the, the scope of work. And I think, you know, there's been there's been a lot of changes, a lot of positive move and the crews are absolutely fantastic so in a casual role you know I, I probably would like to do more than one shift every two weeks but i, I predominantly work on the single response on cou i have the option of working on an ambulance but it's just a matter of my availability and, and if there's any shifts on cou that's my first preference and i think i say you know the, the crews are fantastic they there's a lot of of desire to to want to learn and and I think you know that's one of the enjoyment. The things that I enjoy is, is disseminating that that knowledge and helping and guiding, mentoring um, in in the clinical environment. Yeah, I know a lot of people are thankful. Um, you know, I know a lot of paramedics that work with you, and you know they've kind of you've taken them under their wing and taught them, and they're really appreciative, especially of the experiences you've had. You know, in South Africa versus Australia, so you, you know, you've given these guys a wealth of knowledge, um, and uh, something they're very much thankful for. Just touching on those experiences, I want to talk a little bit about resilience because you've had such a varied career. Um, you know, you've seen a lot of trauma. What's some of the things that you do to stay so resilient and keep yourself in check? Something I, I always say is you never get used to the idea of the severity of the trauma. You get used to the idea of getting used to it. Um, so it's, it's, uh, you'll never, ever get that out of your head or out, out of your system. It's something that we 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 exposed to, we we see and we experience, and I think you know as you say, 
what do we do as individuals to get through that? And I think the most important thing is is having a mentor or a, a, a person to speak to, a friend, a shoulder. And we say, you know, to each other, are oh, you okay? I think the biggest thing is when someone turns around and says, no, I'm not. Um, we don't know what to say after that. You know, I've, I've got friends here in Australia, in Darwin, who I can phone up and I can talk to and we really, you know, expose ourselves. We exceptionally, you know, it's just, it's there's professional courtesy, but it's it's more about, you know, brotherhood, friendship. We've all experienced certain things that, and, and you get different triggers for different people. So I think the most important thing is is bouncing off your mates. That's that's important. And, and you'll find, you know, which one's, probably listen better um, or experience or, or give you the right answers or make you feel more comfortable. I've, I've got a, a, a voice or a shoulder that I lean on um, back in South Africa as well. And, and you know, this guy just asks me all these funny questions and gory questions and gets me to talk and vent and get it off my chest and literally prompts and promotes me to get rid of whatever emotions I'm holding back. And, you know, we don't ever want to hold back on those emotions we don't want to keep them we don't want to store them we don't want to hang on to something that's that's traumatized us in one way or another so i think it's it's important to get that off your chest to get it out in whichever way you feel most comfortable doing um, some people have regular counseling sessions with with professionals if that works for you that's great other people yeah i, I you know i like closing my eyes um, and just zoning out completely, call it meditating if you want. And, you know, some people read books, some people um, sing songs. Um, there, there's m m many, many different ways that, however, you want to get rid of that stress or, or those anxieties or those emotions. But the most important thing is don't hang on to them. Uh, wise words there. Um, finally, can we get some words of advice for people that are looking to come, you know, into to the healthcare industry, more specifically paramedics. Yeah, so I mean, Darwin's got, you know, um, we've got Flinders, we've got Charles Darwin University. It doesn't matter where you study, you know, it's it's a, a degree. You know, St. John Ambulance NT has the opportunity for working, you know, work experience and, and getting really good exposure with a decent, I say a decent, with a really good scope of practice with all, with all the right equipment. And more importantly, probably with, you know, a fantastic team of people, and that makes the difference. The guys that you work with, um, it is. It's it's a it's a career that's that's challenging. You're in the back of a, a moving box for for twelve hours. Um, you're getting abuse from various different angles. You're seeing highly stressed. You you're exposed to all of these different factors. And we go home and and sit down with our kids at night, and you know, be all happy and friendly. But the <laughs> getting back into the, the mental health part, but, you know, it is. It's it's um, someone who wants to get into this industry. They need to be resilient. They need to, to be humble. I think that that's an important word. There's a lot to learn, and it's a continuous learning process of life skills and people skills, and and more importantly, you know, more you learn about yourself, and you I think you do become more and more humble as time goes by. Um, and it's not a it's not a glorified position. It's not you know, you're not doing it for your ego. You're doing it to help other people in, in dire situations. Yeah, so doing it doing it for the right reasons. Yeah, yeah. I think it's very important. 
Well, thank you very much for coming on the podcast and, you know, sharing these stories with us. I think you've provided a really good insight, you know, on your career and given some really good advice for people. So I really appreciate it, Jeff. I appreciate the opportunity and and best of luck with the podcast because you're doing a great thing. Thanks, mate. I really appreciate it. Thank you for tuning into the Priority Zero podcast. We greatly appreciate your dedicated listenership. If you are interested in being featured as a guest on our show, we welcome you to reach out to us through our official channels on Facebook or Instagram. Alternatively, you can contact us via email at contact at priorityzero.com.au. We value your support in helping us spread these compelling stories to a wider audience. Kindly consider liking and sharing these episodes as it plays a crucial role in our mission to reach as many people as possible. 